in our summer series called Twisted Scripture. We're in week five. It's crazy to believe it's July. We've been going at this for a full month now. What this series is all about is Christian quotes, phrases, maybe verses, but uh, these coin terms taken out of context from the Bible. And what we are doing is we are saying, no, what does the Bible really say? Even if you're quoting the verse and the verse sounds right, you could still be taking it out of context. So the whole point is to say, what does God's word say and how does that inform the way we live? So tonight we are going to dig into Jeremiah 29. You, if you've been around a church, if you've looked for home decor, if you buy Christian apparel, uh, you've probably seen the verse that we're about to, to talk through. If you have a physical Bible and you're trying to find Jeremiah, try right smack dab in the middle. You might open to it. If you open to Isaiah, it's the next book. All right, that's how you can find Jeremiah. So I'm going to start just by reading the verse, Jeremiah 29, 11. All right, the word of God says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Maybe your, your translation says, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. And all God's people said, amen. Yeah, we love it, right? And here's this reality. This is the word of God. That statement is absolutely true. But if we read it out of context, we are in danger of settling for a smaller hope. Or dare I say, we are in danger of having a false hope, a hope that actually won't last. Now, this teaching has been going on for thousands of years, but has become all the more prevalent, especially in evangelical American church today. It's called the prosperity gospel. Maybe you've heard of that before. Maybe you haven't, but I guarantee you've been exposed to it. It's this idea that Jesus came lived the perfect life, died on the cross. Yes, amen, all true. Prosperity gospel will teach you this, that Jesus died on the cross to make you healthy, wealthy, whole. That Jesus does not want you to suffer. And if you're suffering, actually, he wants you to not suffer for long. So it's all about you. That's what the prosperity gospel will teach you. And maybe you've been exposed to it. Maybe you've actually believed it. And here's the deal. The prosperity gospel is sneaky, and it sneaks its way into the church today. We can begin to believe that God is actually all about our comfort, all about our success, all about our health. And if you're saying, hey, I've never believed it, I'm going to push in a little bit. What do you tell people when you are sharing your faith? What, what do you promise people if you say, hey, come follow this Jesus that I follow, that I call Lord and King? We are prone to say, hey, come follow Jesus. He will make all of life better. <laughs> and in a sense, that is true. But we can begin to sell ourselves or we can begin to sell our friends on this idea that Jesus actually doesn't want you to suffer. But what happens when you lose your job due to the coronavirus? What happens when 
your parent is diagnosed with cancer? What happens when your future job falls through? You get fired from an internship or you, you lose a relationship that you thought you were going to get married to this person. Then what? Can you still have hope as a Christian? Or let me say it this way. Can you suffer as a Christian and still have hope in a God that is for you? That's what we're going to look at tonight. So we are in Jeremiah 29, and I'm not just going to start reading because we need to know where we've been. We're 29 chapters deep. Here's Jeremiah. He's writing to Israel, and uh, Jeremiah gives me some hope. Dude served the Lord faithfully for over 40 years. Two converts. <laughs> so for those of you that are like feeling beat up when you share your faith, Jeremiah served the Lord faithfully for 40 years, had two converts. Um, but Jesus um, uses Jeremiah to not just be the type of prophet that comes and shares good news all the time. Jeremiah is a prophet that comes to speak warning and judgment. He's not popular. He tells Israel, you are plagued with idolatry. You are establishing this culture that is thriving on social injustice. Sound familiar? Yeah, it does. It's just like the world we live in today. And he goes to Israel and he says, turn from your wicked ways. And they don't want to listen. They shut him up. And then he takes it a step farther. He says, all right, done warning you. Here's what's going to happen. God is going to send Babylon, this empire against you. Babylon is going to conquer you. And they're going to take you into exile for 70 years. 70. All right. How many of you guys like can't stand when you're in a McDonald's drive through and you're like, I thought this was fast food. What the heck? Right? Like we are so impatient. Jeremiah says 70 years, you're going into exile. Maybe you're, you're not an old Testament scholar. Neither am I. We're learning together. Here's what you need to know about exile. This dates back all the way to Genesis. Adam and Eve are in the garden and God says, Hey, here's my creation. It's good rule over it. Enjoy it. Just one thing. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What do they do? They eat. <laughs> it's, it's this innate like, oh man, I want to be my own God. I want to chase after my own thing. They eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what happens is God comes, he restores them, he clothes them, but then what does he do? He sends them out of the garden. Exile. It is this concept that you are being forced out of your home. Home is this place of stability, security. You're surrounded by love and trust. And exile is being forced out of your home. Everything is thrown into disarray. You're disoriented. Things are not as they should be. And exile is a direct result of failing to faithfully obey the covenant of God. So when... Jeremiah is saying to Israel, hey, you're going into exile. What he's saying is, you're disobedient. God is going to judge you, and he's going to turn you over to Babylon. Okay, that's where we're at. And in chapter 28, there's this guy named Hananiah. And he comes to Israel, and he says, Jeremiah, he, he's a kook. Don't listen to him. Uh, he says, Babylon's going to come, and you're going to be in exile for 70 years. And he puts on this show, and he breaks this, uh, this like, yoke, and he says, it's not going to be seven years, two years, right? Babylon will only rule you for two years, so don't worry about it. The prosperity gospel. He's saying, 
guess what? God cares way more about your comfort, so he would never let you be in exile for 70 years. Well, uh, this is what happens. I'm just going to read tail end of 28. Jeremiah the prophet said, listen, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you, and you have made this people trust in a lie. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I will remove you from the face of the earth. This year you shall die because you have uttered rebellion against the Lord. And in that same year, in the seven month, the prophet Hananiah died. So Hananiah came and he promised this quick release. Don't worry about it. God's going to give you a quick way out. And he's struck down. He's given a death sentence. And then Jeremiah picks up in verse four. This is where we're going to start tonight's text. So uh, says, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Okay, here's what's going on. Jeremiah writes this letter to Israel. They are in exile. And he says, thus says the Lord, make yourself at home. <laughs> Giddy up, 70 years. So build a house, live in it, plant a garden, eat it, marry, build your family, and invest in the city because... This is your new home. <laughs> Get comfortable. And here's this crazy thing. Is this outside of the will of God? No. We see in, in verse 4, the God of Israel to all the exiles whom I have sent into the exile. Right? This suffering is not outside the will of God. God designed it. He's sovereign. He's in control. And he says, I'm the one that's actually sending you into exile. And you might say, wait a second, right? Like Israel, they rebelled against God. Rebelling against God is against God's will. And to that I say, yes, right? In order to understand suffering, we actually need to understand the role that sin plays in it. And so I'm going to talk to you guys quick about suffering, and then we're going to actually just begin to unpack it. So suffering, heavy topic, right? Um, kind of weird to have a grill out and then come in and be like, all right, tonight we're talking about suffering. Sweet. Um, but here's the deal. Suffering is twofold when it comes to sin. And what we see with Israel here is suffering as a consequence of sin. So Israel's disobedient. And what happens because of their disobedience? They are sent into exile. So when you see the consequence of sin, God is actually saying, hey, your suffering is a form of discipline. And discipline is not a bad thing. Oftentimes we think about discipline as a bad thing. But I have scripture here from Hebrews 12. 
I'm going to flip there quick because I have to do the weird hand thing. But Hebrews 12, if you're with me, you can flip there. Otherwise, it'll be on the screen. All right. Here's what Hebrews 12 says. The Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. He goes on to say, I'm going to skip down to verse 10. Um, he's talking about earthly fathers. He says, earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For in the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So the consequence of sin. I'm going to lay out a few examples for you. If you murder somebody, you're going to do jail time, <laughs> right? Can the, can the God of the universe save you? Can he forgive you from the penalty of your sin? Absolutely. But guess what? You're still serving jail time. Sorry. Like, bad idea to kill someone. Um, how about this one? Gossip. You are going to talk behind your friend's back, someone that you call a friend. Um, you're going to talk behind their back, and they're going to find out about it. And guess what's going to happen? Your relationship's going to be damaged. <laughs> the friendship won't look the same. If you repent and turn to God, will he forgive you of your gossip? Absolutely, right? Jesus came to pay for your sin, but your friendship's still going to be broken. If you view pornography, guess what? You're going to have a damaged view of intimacy. You're going to struggle to enjoy God's perfect plan for intimacy. You're going to have a skewed perspective on what intimacy should be. Will Jesus forgive you of that? Absolutely. But here's the deal. Getting married will not solve your lust and your purity issues. It's going to taint you probably for the rest of your life because you have been disobedient. But God gives you this form of discipline to wake you up, <laughs> to say, hey, I have such a better plan for you right? And that's what he's saying to Israel. Like, hey, you're in exile, but wake up, right? In verse 10, he goes on to say, I promise you, I'm coming back, right? I'm going to bring you back to the land. So there's the consequence of sin, and you might say, okay, I get that, right? If I disobey, there's consequences. But what about the situations where it's like, man, this is just unexplainable, a child diagnosed with cancer, a friend who knows, loves, and follows Jesus and dies in a tragic car accident, a family that is faithfully following Jesus and struggles with infertility. How do we explain that? It, it does come back to sin. It's not sin that they are bearing the burden of, but it's this curse of sin. We live in a broken world. And so we can only expect that, just like exile, right, things are not as they should be. And I have another verse in Hebrews. So Hebrews 5. Here's what we see. Jesus lived the perfect life. 
was never, was literally never disobedient. Not in thought, not in motive, not in word, not in action. Live the perfect life. And here's what it says in Hebrews 5, 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Jesus himself lived the perfect life. And guess what? He suffered. <laughs> he suffered. Because Jesus himself came into this broken world. And he experienced hurt just like you and me. Why does it say that Jesus suffered? He learned obedience through his suffering. Isn't that incredible? Like Jesus himself learned obedience through suffering. He steps into this broken world and through his suffering, he's like, oh man, like I have to abide in the father, right? I have to do my father's will. It grew his relationship with the father. It grew his trust in him. It spurred him on to say, Yes, God, this is what's best for you. This is what's best for me. Suffering leads to a growing faith, right? Just as gold is purified by going through fire, our faith is, here it says, made perfect. Our faith is just purified by going through struggle, by going through suffering. So we already see in our text of Jeremiah that suffering is going to play the role in the life of all of us in this room. And if you haven't suffered yet, buckle up, because you're either in a valley, coming out of a valley, or heading into one. I speak from experience when I say that. This is an opportunity for us to say, okay, God, like what would you have for us in suffering? And in verse 10, he says, I'll visit you, I'll fulfill my promise to you, and bring you back to this place. What this means for Israel is more than you and I can grasp in reading that sentence. He says to Israel, I'm going to give you the promised land back. And the promised land was not just a plot of grass to Israel. <laughs> the, the promised land was not just a possession. Although it's a land flowing with milk and honey, it's fertile land. No, the land to Israel is a direct sign of God's covenant with them. To have the land is to have God himself. And so in verse 10, when he says, hey, guess what? I'm bringing you back to the land. What he's saying is, I am going to restore our relationship. You are going to not just get the created blessing. You are getting me. <laughs> You're getting God himself. Which brings us to the next section of verses 11 through 14. I'm going to read. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I have sent you into exile. What is this welfare? Um, your translation might read prosperity. Mine has a footnote that says peace, 
what is this peace? What is this, this hope that God is promising to Israel? Is it like health and wealth and physical well-being? You have to keep reading. In the next four chapters, 30 through 33, this is exactly what Jeremiah begins to unpack. It says, here's what's going to happen. Here is the welfare. Here's the peace. Here's the future. Here's the hope. God is going to renew his covenant. He's going to transform Israel's heart. He's going to not just give the Torah or the law on stone tablets. He's going to write it on their hearts. And a Messiah, a Savior, will come from the line of David. A Messiah will come from the line of David. And that means this. Israel, Salt Company, you screwed up. You followed your own way. You have served other gods. But your sin doesn't have the final say. Your suffering doesn't have the final say. Because I am sending a Messiah. Maybe you haven't heard this before, but we serve a God that is so far set apart from us. He is holy, he is perfect, he is blameless, and he has set out for us this path of life. He has designed us and said, I want you to flourish as you are, and I want you to flourish in relationship with me. He created us to be with him. But just like Adam and Eve, our sin, nature, we are opposed to God. Every inch, every ounce of our body, although we are created in the image of God, wants what we want. You and me, we chase after our own desires. We love our sin. And God says, guess what? Because you have missed the mark. That's one way to define sin, missing the mark. Because you haven't missed the mark, you're cast out. Just like Adam and Eve, you're, you're cast out. But that would be bad news if it stopped right there, wouldn't it? <laughs> right? Like, hey, you missed the mark. Sorry. See ya. Enjoy exile. That's not what Jeremiah tells us. That's actually not what we even learned from Genesis. God is concerned about his creation. So much so that he says, I know that the only way back to me is to live a perfect life or to shed the bloodshed of a perfect life. You can't earn your way back to me. But because we couldn't do it, he sent his one and only son. Jesus Christ, fully man, fully God, steps down from heaven. <laughs> steps down from heaven. I don't think you get that. Think about the world we live in today. Jesus Christ steps down from heaven, and he says, I'm going to suffer just like them. Not just in the everyday things of life. No, he suffers to the point of death, even death on a cross. He despises its shame. He takes on the full wrath of God that you and me so rightly deserve. And he rises. Three days later, he rises from the grave and he says, whoever would believe in me has eternal life. Whoever would turn from their wicked ways, whoever would trust that when I said to Telestai on the cross, which means it is finished, or paid in full, whoever would believe that their salvation is not up to them, but has been purchased by my blood, you are reconciled back to the Father. 
You are, in a sense, brought back to the land. You have relationship with God. Amen, right? Come on. That's good news. Israel is being reminded that God is for them. In the midst of the struggle, he is being, Israel is being reminded, I'm for you, right? I'm, I'm disciplining you, but here's the deal. A Messiah is coming. Jesus has the final word. This message, I have to say this, this message is for the people of God. This is for Christians. So if you find yourself tonight saying, I don't know what I believe in. If you do not put your trust in Jesus Christ, your sin will have the final word. Your pain will have the final word. But if you are in Christ, if you believe in the finished work of Christ, here's the deal. You don't have to question in your suffering whether God is for you or against you. <laughs> His plans are for you. His thoughts are toward you. Does it stink? Yeah. Nobody said suffering was fun, <laughs> right? Suffering in its moment is not fun. But it yields holiness. We get to share in holiness. We get to share in God's righteousness. We get to draw into the character of Christ. What does this mean for us today? The problem with our world today is that we care more about the temporary than the eternal. We take a look around and we care more about our goods than we do our God. And we care a heck of a lot more about our comfort than we do our Christ-likeness. That is a fact. But that is not true of the God we serve. God cares way more about your soul than he does your struggle. God cares way more about your holiness than he does your health. And God cares way more about your eternity than he does the easiness of your life. When we read Romans 8, which we're going through as a church on Sundays, we see Romans 8, 28. For God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. All things. In your suffering, in your struggle, in your pain, God is using that for your good. It's a promise of the word. So I'm going to share a quick story. Hopefully you guys don't mind butt stories. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Sorry, there's, there's no easy way to, to go into that. Um, so, yeah, I have, I have a story about a butt, and thankfully it's, it's my own butt. So, I don't know. I, I think I need to get a new butt. Mine has a crack in it, but, um, yeah, sorry. Yeah, really bad, really bad. Okay, here's the deal. I came, I came to know Jesus in March of 2013, seven years ago, and in my head I was like, holy cow, this Jesus is true, this Jesus is good. I became hungry for his word, and if I'm being honest, I had a pretty, pretty sheltered, pretty blessed life, um, but one thing that was true of me is I grew up with a dad who was chronically ill, and so I kind of struggled with this idea of, like, how would God allow my dad to stay chronically ill and not be healed, 
Um, but I came to know Jesus, and honestly, those thoughts kind of dissipated. Like, I would still have that wrestle with God, but I started to think about it less because I just trusted his goodness. But a month later, so I'm one month into, into following Jesus. Some of you have maybe heard this story before. Um, I woke up one morning and could barely get out of bed. <laughs> um, was healthy. I was running, I mean, 30 plus miles a week in good shape. And I woke up and I could barely stand. I could barely get out of bed. Here's what had happened. I started to get cysts in my spine. And I say it's a butt story because it happened like right by my butt, like tailbone area. <laughs> so think about it. I mean, have any of you hurt your tailbone before? It's the worst. You can't walk, you can't sit, you can't lay down, like in chronic pain. And no joke, I was laying in bed a month old as a Christian and I just felt this overwhelming sense of peace. It made no sense. I'm like, wait a second. <laughs> I was healthy and now I can barely walk. But I wasn't saying, God, why would, you, why would you give this to me? Why would I be sick? I said, God, show me what you're up to. <laughs> right? Like, let me see what you're trying to do because I trust you. And whether you heal me or not, I trust you. And I trust that this is for my good. Even if I don't walk, I trust you. My perspective changed, and I'm telling you this. You cannot muster up the strength to pray that prayer. You need the Spirit of God to begin to see and hear and understand that God would use your suffering for your good. But if you are in Christ, you have the Spirit of God inside you. It's not about mustering up the strength to view suffering as good. It is about trusting in the promises of God. And in Hebrews 12, we see that this Jesus, who we call Lord and Savior, it says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, and he despised its shame, and he is seated at the right hand of God's throne. The spirit that allowed Jesus to joyfully endure the cross lives inside of you today. The same spirit that allowed him to endure the cross is enabling you and empowering you to endure the suffering you're in. As I started to think about suffering, I just started to think through who we follow, who we call king. We follow a crucified king. King Jesus, crucified. And I'm going to try and not preach for an hour here, but um, Matthew 10, I'm going to flip there. If you want to flip there with me, there's a lot going on. Jesus is talking to the apostles. And I'm going to read bits and pieces, but um, I encourage you to look at Matthew 10, 16 through 33 on your own time. It says this, sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Beware of men. They're going to deliver you over to courts. They're going to flog you in the synagogues. He goes on to say, brother will deliver brother over to death. Like, they're going to kill you. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. 
but the one who endures to the end will be saved. In verse 25, he says, if they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, if they have called Jesus like spawn of Satan, how much more will they malign those of his household? If you're a Christian and you're following a crucified king, Jesus did not sign you up for an easy life. He did not give you a get out of suffering free card, but he is saying you can suffer differently. Verse 28, do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not therefore, for you are more valuable than sparrows. If God would look out for the birds of the sky, he knows, he knows your story. He knows your suffering. And he promises to bring you through it just like he did for Israel. He doesn't promise it's going to be short. He doesn't promise it's going to be easy, but he's going to bring you through it. Tonight, as we look at this text, we see this concept that you can suffer in hope because God is faithful. You can suffer in hope because God is faithful. And you can endure the current exile you're in when you know that you are God's and he is the final word. These 12 apostles, guess what happened to them? Exactly what Jesus said. When you look at the lives of the disciples, those that followed Jesus to the point of death, all but one were killed for their faith. Crucified, stoned, speared, beheaded, sawed in half. That is what awaited them. But there's another truth from Romans 8 that we're going to be talking about on Sundays, and it's this. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is revealed to us. The disciples knew that they were going to suffer. But the suffering that they were about to endure didn't compare. It didn't compare because their future was secure in Christ. They didn't have to think anymore about, oh, what's going to happen or what's the result of my suffering. They know that their suffering would produce perseverance. And perseverance would create steadfastness, this deep love for God. So they could rejoice in their trials. They could rejoice in their suffering. Making this super practical, what does this look like for us tomorrow? What does this look for us when we leave this place? How does Jeremiah 29, 11 apply to you and me today? Well, first off, I said it before, if you're not in the family of God, if you have not trusted in the finished work of Jesus Christ, let me plead with you. Let me plead with you that you need Jesus. I have suffered on my own, and I have suffered with Christ, and there is no other way than to suffer with Christ. There is no other way. Number two, we need to change our perspective on suffering. Cling to the promise that God is for you. His thoughts are toward you. You're suffering. You no longer have to walk around on eggshells thinking, is God for me or against me? He is for you. It's a promise of scripture. He went to the cross for you. So why would he not then carry you through? The work that he began in you, he will bring to completion. Change your perspective on suffering. Number three, seek God in your suffering. In our text tonight, it says, 
you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Get on your knees and pray. In your suffering, pray to God. And it's not inherently wrong to pray for suffering. Hear me when I say that. God calls us to pray. He wants to hear our voice. He wants to hear our petitions. But here's the deal. If we understand that God is after our holiness, how about we start praying, God, show me what you're up to. Show me what you're doing. Use this for my good, even if it just means I trust you more. Even if it just means I experience you more, God, just open my eyes to see that you are good. Seek God in your suffering. Number four, spirit-filled suffering. Stop trying to muster up the strength. I'm saying that to myself. Jordan, stop trying to muster up the strength. I am so type A, it is ridiculous. Meaning, if I could just work harder and not suffer, I'd probably find a way. <laughs> if it's like, Jordan, climb Mount Everest and you don't have to suffer anymore, I would go do it. But that's not the way of the Christian life. The way of the Christian life is not climbing Mount Everest. It's getting on your knees and surrender. Surrender to God in your suffering. Trust that it's up to you resting in God to resolve your suffering, not you working hard. You don't need to be a Martha. You need to be a Mary. Sit at Jesus' feet. And number five, share the true gospel. Share the true gospel. Bad theology hurts people. And if you sell people on the fact that they can follow Jesus and all of their life's concerns will go away, they will experience suffering and they will not believe in the Jesus you follow. Okay? Share the true gospel. Jesus does not promise a life free of suffering. He promises a life through suffering. That is the truth that you can sell people on. I've heard it said before, Christians are not better because they have Jesus. Christians are better off because they have Jesus, right? Our life is not easier in the sense of our material life, but our life is easier because we have new hearts and new minds that are shaped by Christ. Share the true gospel. If we would cling to this hope tonight, we would be a people that the watching world looks at and they would see people that have hope in the midst of hopelessness. And trust me, we are in the middle of times of hopelessness. We would have joy in the midst of despair, and there is rampant amount of despair in the world we live in. And we would be people that are confident and composed in tumultuous times. We would no longer ride the waves of culture. We would no longer ride the waves of the ups and downs of life. We would remain steady and steadfast. And what this allows us to do is share the gospel in our suffering. When the watching world sees that we are suffering differently, it's not about us. It's about King Jesus, the perfect son of God who went to the cross for us. And as you look around and see suffering going on around you, it's about sharing the gospel to a suffering world. What is their hope in? Allow your heart to begin to break for them as you see that their hope is in their circumstances and their hope is not in Christ. If we put our hope in our circumstances, we will always be let down. And if you know that's true for yourself, do not withhold that from your loved ones. 
Do not withhold that from your friends. Do not withhold that from your family. They need the true hope. So Salt Company, let's not just gather here on a Thursday and talk about how to suffer in the name of Jesus. Let's be people that walk out these doors. And as suffering comes, let's be people that embrace the good news of Jesus and walk in step with the Spirit. Amen?